Today's scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the NIV. Here is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meal roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meal raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with the heads, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of the till the morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Allison and team for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, Trinity Church. So good to see you here this morning. We are now into spring, right? The second day of spring. We're two weeks from Easter Sunday, that's coming up, and uh, this is just a glorious time of year, and especially since we didn't get to celebrate Easter together in person last year, um, really looking forward to that for this year. And Jason mentioned our sunrise service, a great opportunity to come, and we start in the dark, and as we worship, the light begins to emerge, and just kind of a recreation in a sense of that glorious morning, the first day of the week when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So if you can make it out here to the terraces for that outdoor service, uh, 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, I know it's early, I know it means getting up in the dark, but it's a beautiful way to start that day. encourage you to invite others. I told the first service, I mentioned this to my men's group that you've heard me talk about this, started a little men's group in our neighborhood, and we meet every Thursday morning together, and I mentioned our sunrise service to the men in my group, and they said, well, we'll come. And because then we can just, we'll go to our other churches later. So these group of guys from my neighborhood in Canton, they're going to drive 30 minutes up here to the terraces to come to our sunrise service. So I'm really excited about that, that they wanted to come and just hope that you will be there. We'll have a great uh, congregation gathered from our church and from the chapel in Big Canoe and from Foothills Community. All three churches are kind of joining together to put our voices together to start our Easter Sunday in worship. So uh, please make plans to be there there if you possibly can. And let's just pause for a minute. Let's go to prayer, and then we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank You for uh, this time together this morning, this opportunity we've had already to join our voices and to sing Your praises. Uh, Lord, we thank You for the blood that shed for us. 
the blood that saves us, the blood that cleanses our sin. And as we're going to see this morning, this, this wonderful image of our salvation and of our Savior Himself. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that we would listen well to You, listen to Your Word as it speaks to us. Lord, I pray that You would guard my words, help me to accurately, rightly communicate what You have for us this morning. And Lord, we are fully dependent on the power of Your Holy Spirit to do the work in us that we need to teach us and guide us, give us insight, give us the ability to see what's in Your Word, see what You've been showing Your people for thousands and thousands of years. Help us to learn those lessons well and then respond to You in, in life through this day and this week. And Lord, may Your living Word just speak to our hearts this morning. And we will give You all the glory and all the praise that You alone deserve. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this year, Beth and I are reading through the Bible. Some of you may be doing this as well, and we chose a reading plan that we would we'd both do the same plan, different than we did last year. And so we don't always read it together, but we are reading the same text every day. And we're in our plan, we're just about to the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so we've been reading through all the various laws and the ceremonies and especially the sacrifices that God gave to His people. As they came out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they receive instruction on how to worship Him. And we came to a point in our reading last week or the week before, and Beth just came to me one, one day and she said, what's with all the blood? And I had been thinking the same thing, because when you read it through that way, chapter after chapter after chapter, and you're reading about all the sacrifices, and, and the oxen, and the, the, the sheep, and the goats, and all these animals that are, they're bringing in, and they're being slaughtered, and they're being put on the, on the altar, and there's just blood being poured and sprinkled everywhere. So I found this one picture we put on the screen here. Oh, maybe we're not. Were we without our screen? Oh, there he is. Okay. So here's the altar and the horns of the altar, and they're putting, you know, he's kind of got a little stick painting the blood up there. This is kind of sanitized. I know this is kind of a recreation, but there were the animals bleeding over the side of the altar and down on the ground, and the, the priest's outfits and the robes probably were covered with blood. And you read this, and there must have been blood all around that tabernacle. The people, when they would come in, would see that. And so, Beth's question, and the one I had as well, is legitimate. What's with all the blood? Why would God require that as part of His worship? Hold that question. We're going to come back to that. And why these particular animals? I thought about that as well. Well, maybe these were the animals that the Israelites had, and so God built the laws around the animals that they brought out of Egypt. These were the animals accessible to them, and so that was part of their sacrifice. But maybe what touched me most as I was reading this again was there are so many sheep. And offering after offering after offering, day after day after day, sheep were being slaughtered as sacrifices. And sheep, they're so docile, they're so innocent, they're so gentle. Why the sheep? Hold that question too. This month we've been engaged in a series called The Signs of the Passion. And so, through the month of March, we're looking at these signs in the Old Testament, the pictures of Jesus Christ and His passion that we will celebrate come the first weekend in April. 
What are these things that God gave in the Old Testament to show us ahead of time what was coming when He would send His Son to earth? And so the first week we looked at Genesis 3 and we saw Christ and the image of Christ as the serpent slayer. Last week we saw in Genesis 22 the the story of Abraham and Isaac and Christ presented as the substitute ram sacrificed on the altar. And today our sign shows us that from Exodus all the way through Revelation, Jesus is presented as the innocent lamb. So if you have your Bible, your phone, whatever you're going to use, turn, please, this morning to that passage we heard read, Exodus 12. We're going to start there, but keep your Bible handy because we're going to be looking at other passages this morning as well. In Exodus 12, we come to this this critical point in Israel's history, right? And they've... They're, be, they're, they're going, about to go out of Egypt, and God provides this special sign for them, something that they would remember throughout their history. And it's a sign and a, and a ceremony the Jews still celebrate even today, all these hundreds, thousands of years later. It's the Passover. In fact, if you looked at your calendar, Come this Saturday, March 27th, will be the start of Passover. So, so many Jews still celebrate this without knowing the meaning of the symbol that we're going to look at this morning. And here it is, the first of our symbols, which is the Passover lamb. That's what we see in Exodus 12. Let me give you a little background to this if you're unfamiliar. Jacob, who was also renamed Israel, the whole nation named after him, he has a family of 70. They are in in Hebron, and they, are, they come to Egypt looking for food. There's a famine in the land. And if you remember the story, Joseph, his, Jacob's son, through miraculous means, is brought to Egypt. He becomes second only to Pharaoh. He helps save not only Egypt, but all the lands around, preparing for this famine. And so Jacob and his family come. They're 70 plus at this point. They come to Egypt. They settle in Egypt, and they stay there for 400 plus years. And in those 400 years, they grow to become this great nation. But over the years as well, Pharaoh forgets about Joseph, forgets about how things all started, and the Israelites, the Jews, become slaves in Egypt. And they cry out for deliverance, and God sends the deliverer in the person of Moses, and Moses comes in, he tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh hears none of it. He resists, he hardens his heart, the Bible tells us, and God sends the ten plagues. And the last plague, the tenth plague, as you recall, is the angel of death who comes and the firstborn in Egypt dies. And God provides this way for the Israelites to avoid this plague in the end. This is what you heard in Exodus 12, God's way for them to avoid death. And so, a lamb is going to be instrumental in their salvation at this point. Now, lambs were part of sacrifices before this. So even in Genesis, when we saw this, you know, the, Abraham and Isaac are going for the sacrifice, and, and Isaac says, where is the lamb? So they were used to giving lamb sacrifices. But here, now, in this point in Exodus 12, that lamb offering is given a whole new meaning in, conjunct, in conjunction with the Passover. A lamb would be instrumental in their salvation. And so notice a few details about the Passover lamb. Verse 5 tells us that the ram had to be, the lamb had to be without defect. 
Now, that's a requirement that would carry on over into the sacrificial system. So when God gave them the other offerings and sacrifices, it was the same thing. The requirement would be you, you, you have to bring a lamb without defect, not one that was sick or injured. So you couldn't just picture somebody saying, hey, uh, Joseph, go get that lamb that's just, it's already kind of on its last leg anyhow. It's, it's going to die, so just bring that one. We'll use the sacrifice this time. Well, you couldn't do that. It had to be a nearly perfect lamb. It had to be without defect, without fault in any way, as perfect as possible. So they were brought to slaughter the Passover lamb. They, were, they came on, on that at twilight. They were to take the lamb, and after they had killed it, take the blood of the lamb and spread it over the doorposts, the sides and the top of their houses, the entrance to their houses. And this, this strange act with the blood of the Lamb, why would they do this? Well, verse 13 gives a little indication. God tells the people, He says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this blood on the doorframe was going to be a sign not just for God, not just so he knew where the Israelites lived. He would have known anyhow. This was a sign, it says, for them as well, because it was going to be a sign of their faith in God, a sign of their obedience to God. So putting the blood showed that they trusted what God said. The blood of the Lamb would protect them from death. So the Israelites in Egypt when they're given this, they probably couldn't see beyond that day. I mean, this is a major moment, right? So they're just focused on getting out of Egypt. So they just kind of go through the motions, go through the process. They're not thinking ahead, but God was thinking ahead because He gives them this instruction. You look down at verse 24. God says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. God is saying, I'm going to make this something that you will do on a regular basis, annual basis, so that you will remember this, and not just so that they would remember God's deliverance from Egypt, that was part of it, but so that they would have this sign that would point them to what was coming when God would send the final perfect Passover lamb in the person of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, if you go to the Gospels, you go to John, and you look in the first chapter of John, you see John the Baptist, he begins his ministry preparing the way for the Messiah, and he sees Jesus for the first time, and what does he say? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, the first public introduction of Jesus is as a lamb. John the Baptist drawing on this imagery of Scripture, going back to the Passover. But don't miss, there, there's a shift in emphasis here. You've got to catch this. Don't, don't miss this here because for hundreds of years, the Israelites had offered these sacrifices, but they'd brought their lambs, right? Their lambs sacrificed for their sins, sometimes the individual, sometimes for the nation. They brought the sacrifice. They brought their own lambs. John looks at Jesus and he says, there is the Lamb of God. God's providing the sacrifice this time. 
And this time, it's the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. And not just for an individual sin, not just for the sins of one nation, but for the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. It's a little bit like taxes, if you will. All right? So we're coming up into tax time. I just finished working on our taxes last week. And, of course, the day after I finished it, then they extended the deadlines. Like, I could have had another whole month to work on this stuff. But it's good that it's done. But, you know, you do your taxes, you pay your taxes every year, and then it comes right around. Just because you pay this year doesn't mean you won't pay next year and the next year. We pay our taxes every year. Now, what if someone came along and said, I got you covered. I'll pay your taxes for you. Not just this year, but forevermore. You will never pay taxes again. That would be awesome. I didn't even hear any amens to that. <laughs> Amen, I, introduce me to that person. This is what God has done. He's paid our taxes. He's paid the debt for our sin even better. He's provided the lamb himself. He brought the sacrifice this time. And the connection to Jesus as the Passover lamb is really clear throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. <laughs> no clearer identification than that. If you, if you missed it anywhere along the way, Paul makes it very clear. Christ came as our Passover lamb. Peter ex expands on it a little bit. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. There, Peter gives us one of the answers to one of our questions. Why did the lambs have to be perfect? Because they pictured the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. And that brings us back, of course, to Beth's question. So, why all the blood? Why all those sacrifices? Why all those animals that had to die? Well, the writer of Hebrews makes this connection between those blood sacrifices of the Old Testament in the tabernacle and the precious blood of Christ that Peter mentions here. So look at these verses in Hebrews 9. We'll put these on the screen as well. Hebrews 9, 21 and 22. It's talking about Moses. And the writer says, He sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. So there's the picture we started with, right? Blood everywhere. And the writer of Hebrews says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So blood is the key. Why? Because blood is life. Blood is life. I mean, you can do without some other thing. You can lose an arm and still live. You can lose a leg and still live. You can take out your appendix or you know, other, other things. You can do without. You can't do without your blood. Your blood is absolutely necessary to your ongoing life. And so the blood is this perfect picture of life itself. And so it's why God told the Israelites not to eat the blood. When they would kill animals for food, you were not to eat it with the blood still in it because that represented life. They weren't to eat that. And so because the payment for sin 
is death, the Bible tells us. Only the pouring out of life blood can cleanse us of our sin. So the blood is the symbol of life poured out to cover our sin. And that's what makes the blood of Christ so precious. His life blood poured out to save our lives. And this is what we're saying and heard in that beautiful song Allison sang this morning. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. The blood of Jesus shed for me. That's why we sing about it. That's why we talk about it. <clears throat> so what does this mean for us in a personal sense? Well, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb, He puts the blood of Christ on the doorframe of your heart, as it were. He's taking the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, and He's putting it over you, covering you, protecting you, so that you are saved from the death you deserve. That's the meaning of this. So here's what we learned from the sign. Let's kind of put this all together. The Passover lamb saves us. Very simply, this sign of the Passover lamb means that we are saved from death because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and without the forgiveness of sin, we are dead in our sin. So Christ's blood, it's His blood that saves us from slavery, from sin, from death. That's the blood. Let me bring it into another familiar context. How many of you have ever donated blood before? Let me see your hands for just a moment. Okay, a lot of, great, a lot of blood donors right here. And, and uh, we used to, I remember... We used to have these uh, blood, mobile blood units, maybe you've seen these before, come to our campus when I worked at Toccoa Falls College. Come on campus and they'd do a blood drive and people would sign up. And so students, faculty and staff would be going all day long giving blood. And, you know, it's quite an, an amazing thing because when you go to give blood, it's you know, it only takes a little bit of time, a short amount of time, and you know, at very worst, you might come out just a little bit lightheaded, but they give you orange juice and cookies afterwards, so it makes it worth it, you know. But did you know that one unit of blood, of donated blood, can save up to four lives? And the way they separate it out and use that blood, it can save four lives. Now, over this past year, because of the pandemic, blood supplies and blood donations have dropped significantly. Maybe you hadn't thought about that, but they've dropped significantly. Blood, thousands of blood drives that had to be canceled and new protocols put in place and people hesitant to go out and give blood. What would normally be, most blood centers would have at least a week's supply in, in stock. Nowadays, maybe a day or two at best. We're on the brink of our blood supply because of this pandemic, because of the hesitancy to donate blood, because blood is life. Blood is needed for life. Jesus gave His life, gave His blood for us. God sacrificed His Passover lamb and gave His blood to us so that we could be forgiven so that we could live, so that we could be saved. It's a beautiful image. But there's another image 
that I want us to see this morning. The Old Testament gives us a dramatic image of a lamb in Isaiah 53. Allison read some of the first verses. I want to take you to verse 7 because here we see the silent lamb. You know, in, in Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah is giving us a picture of the suffering servant. We know it's a picture of the Messiah, even though Isaiah doesn't say that specifically. You come to the New Testament and chapters like, like Acts 8 point us back and show us the relationship between Isaiah's suffering servant and Jesus himself, especially in his passion. And there are many amazing descriptions right here in this chapter. We're just going to focus on one right here in verse 7. Isaiah says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So in comparing the Messiah to the silent lamb, Isaiah is letting us know that God's son would come and would die, yes, but also that he would do it in silence. He would do it willingly, without a fight. And this is exactly what we see. When you come to the, the Gospels and see the passion of Jesus, and when the temple guards come to arrest Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not resist. When the religious leaders hurled their accusations at Him, false accusations, by the way, Jesus didn't defend Himself. When Herod applied Him with questions, Jesus gave no answer. When Pilate asked Jesus, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing about you? Matthew, in Matthew 27, 14 says this, but Jesus made no reply, not even a, to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. When the soldiers beat Jesus, when they spit on Him, He did not retaliate. And when they laid Him on the cross to crucify Him, He didn't pull away. The Lamb of God allowed Himself to be oppressed and afflicted, to be rejected and abused, and He did it for you and He did it for me. And then finally, He allowed Himself to be slaughtered. And the specific word that Isaiah uses as a lamb to the slaughter, that was the imagery from the penitent. That's what Beth and I have been reading over and over again, the animals that were slaughtered. It's a word used of the sacrifice. And so Isaiah is not just picturing some lamb that happens to die. He is picturing a lamb that is slaughtered as a sacrifice because that's what Jesus would do. And unlike a lamb who is silent just because the lamb may not know what's coming, Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and He willingly silently gave His life for us. So not only did God the Father provide His Son as the Passover Lamb, His Son, Jesus, came and willingly offered Himself as the silent Lamb. And so this brings us to that second connection point there, the silent Lamb suffers for us. In the Passion of Jesus, we're going to be seeing more as we come into that Easter week of Jesus suffering and His death. He suffers in silence for us. You know, I, I read this and I can't help think about how unlike Jesus I am in this way. 
mean, I, I'm quick to complain about things, this or that, even just the littlest things. We like to voice our complaint. Maybe it's kind of like a, a right that we feel we have. You know, if, if we're not treated right or things don't go right, we feel like we can voice that. And so we complain about it or we defend ourselves or we, we have opinions about this and about that, and we want other people to hear about it. That's not the way of Jesus. It's, I think we struggle sometimes to exhibit this quiet faith and calm assurance that Jesus had even though we've never faced the kind of opposition and rejection that Jesus himself faced. I think there's so much we can learn from our silent lamb. This, uh, this weekend also started the NCAA uh, basketball championship, the March Madness. And those of you who know me know I'm a big basketball fan, love this. And this was something else that I really missed last year when it all got canceled. So uh, I just observed something this weekend as I watched a couple of games. And the, you know, there are different kinds of players. And so some players are very vocal players. And so they're constantly talking to the refs. They're, they're uh, jawing with the other players in the opposite teams. You know, if they get fouled, it's like, oh, I got hacked. I got, you know, they're making it. Look, there's blood. There's blood. I got, I got fouled. There are other players <laughs> that are so focused on the game, they hardly say a word, other than maybe communicating to their teammates. They're just in the game. And the players like that, even if they get hit, get injured, often won't say a word, won't even acknowledge that pain. They play through that pain because they want to stay in the game. They don't want the coach to pull them out. That's what Jesus is like. He, he, he played through the pain. <laughs> He bored in silence. He took all the opposition and the rejection and the suffering and the pain. And he stayed steady on course to the cross. A silent lamb willing to pay the price for your sin and my sin on the cross. Are you willing to silently bear some rejection, some difficulty, some pain for his sake? We should be. When we see His example, we should be willing to suffer for His sake too. There's one more sign that we want to see this morning and end with this morning. It's just the fulfillment that comes at the very end of the Bible. So we started in Genesis and Exodus. We came into the prophet of Isaiah. We've looked at the Gospels, and now we come to the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 5 here because the Apostle John, in this book, receives this revelation of God's plan for the end times, and he sees Jesus in all these various forms. And most amazing, perhaps, is the way that he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. So, again, let me give you the context here. He, this, this chapter begins with a vision of God's throne in heaven. John sees the throne, and there is the scroll that's going to declare God's judgment, finally judgment that comes on sin and evil in the world. But nobody can be found to open this scroll. So it still stays there, and John sees this, and he begins to weep that there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. And so one of the elders from around the throne comes to him and says this. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 5. It says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we're thinking with John, yay, and we were expecting him to next vision, next verse, he's going to see this lion appear, right? But that's not what comes next. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So John sees this lamb, and this lamb takes the scroll from the one on the throne, and the living creatures and the elders fall down on their faces in worship before him. And then they sing this song, verse 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So Jesus appears as the innocent lamb, but not just the innocent lamb, not just the Passover lamb, not just the silent lamb, but now the slain lamb. And I don't know how John knew that. You know, what did he see? He doesn't specify it. So was there like a, a scar on, on the lamb's throat? Was there still blood evident in some way? We don't know. But what we know is John knew right away that this was a lamb that had been sacrificed, had been slain, and that he was the only one to open, worthy to open the scroll, and it was because he had been slain. That's what the text tells us, because he was willing to die and had died. And because his blood bought us back and because he's building a kingdom of priests, because of that every nation of those who serve God will reign with him on earth. So this is what we learned from this last sign. The slain lamb redeems us. The slain lamb is the one who had bought us back by his death. So it means that Jesus wins the final victory over sin, over Satan, over death, because He was willing to be this innocent Lamb for us, slain for the sins of the world. And, you know, you think about that and think about this image, and a slaughtered Lamb, a slain Lamb, does not evoke an image of great power and authority and victory, does it? Not typically. We think of the lion, yeah, that pictures that, but the slain lamb? And yet, we see him, John sees him, I think, as the slain lamb because it was at that moment when Jesus stretched out on the cross, when he died, when he shed his blood for us, that was his moment of victory over Satan. That was the moment of victory over sin. It was in his death, in the slain of the lamb, that victory took place. So the slain lamb is the one who's our champion. The slain lamb is our savior. He's our high priest. He's our king. He is the lion. He's all of that. The third book of the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia series is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that particular book in the story, the children are looking for Aslan, the lion, the, the Christ figure. They're looking for him. They're looking for his country. And they find instead a lamb. And this lamb serves them a meal. And this, this lamb is so gentle and kind to them. And after the meal, little Lucy asked the lamb this question. She says, 
Please, lamb, is this the way to Aslan's country? And the lamb answers, there is a way into my country from all the worlds. And then C.S. Lewis, as narrator, comes in, he says, but as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. They didn't recognize him as the lamb. They recognized him as the lion. But the lion is the lamb. And even though the image of a lion may seem more powerful and impressive to us, based on Revelation 5, it's the image of the lamb, the slain lamb, that draws the elders and the creatures and everyone in heaven to fall on their faces and worship. I think that's a fitting response for us this morning to our Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the silent Lamb, the slain Lamb, the one who is worthy of our worship. As we prepare for the table this morning, let's give Him that worship. Would you stand with me?